Welcome back to the 67th episode of the Twin Geek Cast. Our whole city's shut down. Um, there's nothing coming out, so um, uh, thanks for joining us. This was a good show. <laughs> yep, uh, this is the end of movies and movie podcasts and uh, others of its ilk. Uh, I guess we're just converting to old movies forever now, which is great for me. <laughs> this It's really funny because you don't have to change anything you're doing. No. <laughs> Now, I mean, the only thing is, like, my, my local rental place and favorite movie theater are, are shut down as well now, and that makes me sad, but it's okay, they'll come back, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And, I, and I've got a whole host of library things. Again, this this week we kind of just turned and we're like, oh, it's on the Criterion channel, let's find something that's worth talking about and that we can tell other people to talk about and watch, which I'm excited to do. <laughs> There's going to be a lull, like, in the podcast where we might have shorter episodes, but I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. So. No, I think... I think shortening things makes sense, especially since everyone's just, again, it's, it's all out, out and out closing, and uh, yeah. we can only talk about a sole movie for so much time as we've displayed in the past. You know, I've, I've had people that are like, like my fiance talks about wanting our sections in the end to be longer, but then other people are like, oh no, we want all the beginning stuff longer, we like more of that stuff in the back and forth. <laughs> so it's like you can't win either way, but now we're really screwed because you're just basically only getting the old movie section from here on out for i'm sure a couple weeks if not for the rest of time with the way things are going i mean i don't think movies are coming out anymore i think uh it's fair to say this is the end of the year yeah i i (laughs) it sounds about right actually uh with all those memes popping around of like birds of prey (laughs) winning best picture or something like that i see a lot of bad boys competition going Mm -hmm. for best picture and best actor I've uh, my my end of year list consists of Sonic the Hedgehog and that's it. <laughs> that's all I the think you're in a good place the then for this whole conversation where we look at. Um, uh, we're going to do a little game again where we look at uh, <laughs> what would win if the year ended because it has ended. Our our front end of the podcast is now just coronavirus related games for the rest of time. <laughs> it's true. All right. Um, what has come out? Has anything? I, I should just view your like best of 2020 list right now to get an sure. idea because I, I think you've seen anything of note i'm just pulling it up there on my go. phone now i will not take okay. your link so <laughs> here we go <laughs> um we're looking at a pretty dire list i mean it, there's been a lot of stuff that we're looking at a couple months of nothing happening and then mm. a couple weeks of movies coming out and then the end of the year yeah all right so looking over your list again i think like the most notable things that people have talked about it, like mm-hmm. like blockbustery wise and such are like invisible man and color out of space are like the most i saw buzz around throughout the year okay. so there there are 2020 oscar front runners um i think invisible man i think we're going to put her up for best actress here because <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't see another option <laughs> Um, Emma? I think, is, is Emma something you would consider? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to give Emma costume design this year. I, yeah. How do you feel about that? That's That sounds about right. Uh, do you want to give, I guess since since I mentioned it, color out of space, should that go to, for cinematography? Since yeah, I feel, I, I feel comfortable with giving that cinematography. Okay. It has a lot going on there. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, ben Affleck for Best Actor. Wow, what a surprise. Yeah, unless you want to go with Jim Carrey. Um, Jim Carrey could get like a runner-up. <laughs> Maybe he's the best supporting actor, though. I feel mm-hmm. like he's not the main character of Sonic the Hedgehog, truly. So James Marsden for best actor, then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have to make a whole category, right? So uh, <laughs> I, have, I have Ethan Hawke for the truth. Oh, can't talk about that. Um, oh, oh, I mean, cut. <laughs> I cut that. Uh, I have First Cow, which uh, I really Can you... can't talk about. But yeah, I was I... like, you can't really talk about it. I think you just got the notification as well that you really really can't talk about it and we have no idea when you can talk about it but uh, can we talk about not talking about it picture of all time i i I can't say more i guess okay i i guess that's the amount we'll we'll say and probably we'll ever say so Uh, best cow goes to first cow for sure because it's the only cow movie i don't think they could come after me for that yeah uh, Wait, it's have... not out yet, so we can't really include it, can we? No, I, I don't know if you can even talk about not talking about it. That's the that's the kind yeah. of confounding uh, you know place we're in right now. We don't know what we can or can't say. I could say I'm really excited to talk about it in a few months. That's it. There, there you go. That's all you're going to get. A few months, I think that's optimistic. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> I think it could be like a good... Uh, uh, not good. I don't know if it'll be good, but August release. 
I think I've just accepted that this is reality now. This is the world we live in. <laughs> so, um, ride your wave. Anime is the best of the year. Shut down 2020. Um, There's a couple other animated films you could consider the the Shaun the Sheep movie or Onward. Yeah. Great year for animation, truly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And All we're looking three. at a, a Yusua, who did like a nice short walk-on girl, a very... A uh, textured anime developer. I like his slice of life stuff a little bit better than like Devilman Crybaby. So, uh, ride your wave, film of the year. Uh, congrats to anime, the one time you'll ever win. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, what we're looking at here, I don't, I don't have much to say. Like I said, there's there's <laughs> there's very little that's come out so far. We're kind of in the same position. Like, imagine if we this happened last year, where we all we'd basically have to talk about is us at this point. That would have been the only thing. <laughs> us that, oh, worth. Happy death day to you and us would be like our only things. I think. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> this is weird. Has has this? I can't recall any time something of this has really happened on this big of Never. a scale i'm seeing comparisons to like in like as far back as 1918 where similar epidemics shut down theaters and restaurants and stuff but that's like that's a hundred years ago i was gonna say not since the 1920s has anything like this ever happened certainly not in any of our lifetimes yeah it's it's kind of insane and i don't know all of the reasoning behind it here like because yeah. we can look as recently back as like we had a similar uh uh, pandemic with like the swine flu in the, mm. the late 2000s but uh i it, and i lived through that you know i remember that certainly but i yeah, definitely I don't remember it being of the scale i don't think i don't remember school being canceled at any point because of it whereas every school in the country is canceled right now i got the swine flu while reporting on pax west oh here. that was fun yeah well i felt like i was dying for two weeks but then it was you know then nobody cared yeah, it's just interesting how that went away as easily as it came, but this feels like a whole thing, like we're gonna, this is a defining moment of the, the 2020s already. Well, I was driving downtown, I do a lot of Uber driving on the side here, and I was thinking about how it was like driving in the 90s, but a lot less, the whole city is shut down. It's um, it's funny, because we're like on opposite ends, because you're, you're driving around and seeing the emptiness of the streets, and I work in, in a grocery store yeah. on my side here, and it is insane every single day and we can't keep product on the shelves yeah i've been avoiding those um so what do you think for best visual effects do you want to put sonic up in that category as well i mean that's the only movie i've seen so yes i mean we gotta work with what you have what else do you want to nominate sonic for (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i guess score was the score all right Um, can i can i give it just for the gangster's paradise in the trailer i know it wasn't in the film but I mean, you could. There's nothing else here saying that you shouldn't, I think. Um, let's see. So, best documentary is goes to Taylor Swift. Congratulations to our girl. What, what uh, about for... what about Jasper Mall? You're just going to do a, a camo mullet dirty like that? I think he wins best camo mullet of the year for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw Jesus Rolls last week, which is the uh, Lebowski spinoff, which really isn't. It's more like a remake of a French film that I can't is remember even, the exact title for, but uh, is it even worth talking about or acknowledging? Like it just it just looks like a really bad idea from the get go, and I haven't even wanted to acknowledge that it exists. I mean, we have to remember he's barely in the Big Lebowski, so there's not that much that it could really pull from, but it does. You think so. it sours the Big Lebowski now, knowing about this? I don't think it has any impact whatsoever. I don't even think it'll be a footnote on, like, the Lebowski name. It's so minimally connected, and uh, there's really nothing there. I mean, it has some cameos, and uh, John Turturro doesn't find, like, a single style that he wants to stick with. It's it's very weird. I thought about doing a section on it, but it's too heartbreaking to think about. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I guess, heartbreaking things to talk about, you want to mention how things are going to go forward here in terms of, like, cinemas being closed and how that's going to affect the already dying business of the theater experience i'm very worried locally in seattle about our independent theaters um i know once they come back i have to cancel my amc just for my heart and go with like grand illusion or something get a membership you know uh it would just be the right thing to do (laughs) 
I think you should, especially again the the independent theaters, and that's what I've been doing, obviously, for a long time now. Here, I've been supporting the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, which is a wonderful institution. And I was sad that they had to close as well, but of course, it's a necessity. I don't know if it's connected to Scarecrow, but it puts me in that neighborhood often, so that's a good thing too. Yeah, and uh, um, I think it's important to to do that. But in general, I think this is. Very bad, obviously, for the uh, the theater business, and it only leads further to my uh, inevitable apocalyptic conclusion that the theater experience will all but be gone by the end of this decade. I feel very smart, because every film that I put up about cancellation has been canceled, except for The Hunt. Yeah, I was uh, entirely wrong on all fronts there when we I don't did think, that prediction a couple I don't back. think you saw how it was going in Italy and how it was going to develop here, though, no. you know? It, well, it took off really fast. Like, in a matter of a week, like, everything started shutting down, like, more and more. Like, I remember getting those notifications from, like, specifically the Hollywood, and they were like, all right, well, we're going to cut back, you know, stadium size to, like, 250, you know, for everyone there. And then, like, the next day, it was like, all right, well, now we're going to, you know, close. And then the next day after that, everything else is closing. And next day after that, it's like, oh, now no more gatherings of 50 people or anything like that. It was like, wow, that was just really fast ramp up. And now our fake president says that we have uh, mandatory 10 people as our maximum, so uh, no real public gatherings in business spaces any longer. Um, that basically counts for theater staff, so uh, all AMCs and Regals are closed. Yeah, it's all closed, and the fact that we are seeing a smart decision, though, from a lot of these uh, uh, companies here, and that they are putting out uh, the films on the same day as uh, for VOD, which, if that goes over super well, then that's going to really kill theater business, you know, soon enough if they stick with so, that model. What's your price to see Trolls World Tour? What are you going to pay? <sighs> Nothing. I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> I don't even watch movies. Is I saw Sonic this year only because you had a free pass. <laughs> right. So uh, you wouldn't pay. There's no, like, secret. Say you're most excited for thing about this year. I don't know. I don't know if you're excited about anything, but... Uh, 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 I've got one thing I know I'm excited about. I'm excited for new Wes Anderson, so I'll say French okay. Dispatch. I like French Dispatch. So, I, I like what, it. what would you hypothetically pay to watch French Dispatch at home? Yeah. Because you can oh, watch it with yeah. your fiancé, right? that if covers I, two tickets. If, if you incorporate the idea there that you're expecting like a two- to four-person audience for everyone, you want to equal out that price, I think maybe like $15... Really? Okay. I thought I they were say, underballing it with like uh, twenty dollars, but uh, oh, that's that's me because again, the the trade off you have to consider as well is the the theater experience, which for some people that's like a, a great thing. They don't want that. They don't want to sit in a dark movie theater that they can't pause and they can't you know get up and use the bathroom for it. But there is still a sanctity to it that I love and want to preserve, even if it's not something I exercise as much as I'd like to. Well, that's but, the thing for me. Even when it comes back, I know how much they improve movies. I mean, having a screen and a sound system that large, it inherently improves anything you see. So. Yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. And like the foundation of the theaters to see it projected on that big screen. And the audience is such an uh, integral part, I, I feel, uh, at least for the yeah. right movie. Uh, ones where you get that, you know, uh, reaction altogether, especially like a really great comedy you'll see together, uh, or just a, a really fun musical I've, I've had great experiences with, where the whole room lights up and you have this shared energy together, and that's the kind of the magic of the movie experience, which we don't see as much, I think, in modern movies and multiplexes now. You don't get that same experience, but it's it's hard because the... The sanctity of it, I, I guess, is largely gone, and people don't respect the experience like they should. Uh, yeah. At least again in like those multiplex. I've had no trouble in the art house, and you know, like uh, you know, bigger, uh, nice, you know, restored theaters. I should say. I think. Well, the only movies I've had that went completely silent were A Quiet Place and First Cow, which I can't say why. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the I I wish people would treat it that way for every movie but uh those are the only two experiences i've been like this is very uh foundational to what i'm experiencing here is that everyone's very quiet yeah you risk um having really annoying people in the audience because uh people in general i think the the casual movie goer doesn't regard it as much as an experience as an outlet for entertainment nowadays mm. you know that's that's the thing that's more or less lost uh, and the danger of that, then, is that if we do have 
this accepted uh, this acceptance of you know on demand movies and seeing new things right on your streaming services and people really take to that then there's almost no incentive to go to you know the theaters anymore it's like the big uh fight the studios had in the 50s with television but i think on an even worse scale like they don't have any big extravagant ideas to combat you know uh the television and that medium like they did in the 50s where they went with you know bigger and bolder productions and cinerama and such we had just gotten our uh, IMAX laser into the mall, so I was excited to try that out, so it came at the worst time. But um, I'm also thinking that my wife keeps saying, well, it's such a great value to watch it at home for $20, but for me, it's so much more about, you know, going out and having, like, a thing. Like, watching Trolls World Tour with my daughter in the theater would be so much more memorable than seeing it at home, and we're going to do that 20 more times, right, when it comes right. to uh, another service. So there's just a, it's not an isolated, interesting experience for me because we could sit on the couch every day and watch something. Well, and the thing for me as well is that that $20 price ticket at home, it's not worth it. You're only, like all that money is going to having it as the, at the very soonest time possible. Like it, it's the equivalent of paying for expedited overnight shipping effectively. Yeah, yeah. Like you're just too impatient to wait for it to come at a reasonable time and, and rent it, you know, at a regular rented price that's equivalent to how much it costs theoretically to put it on the streaming service, which is like nothing, you know? Yeah. And I know the previous argument was that like a hundred dollars would be a good price point for this, so I'm surprised they went twenty at all. But a um, uh, hundred dollars for like a, a ticket? I forget. Someone from Apple or Facebook went out and studied it and said that's what people would pay. I don't think so. Someone's gonna pay a hundred dollars to sit down and watch a movie that they they only get like maybe twenty four or forty eight hours to view it within. I I do for like a pay per view, so like a boxing match could last three or four seconds, right? And uh, if as long as I have people over and I'm not going out and eating the whole time and buying drinks and stuff, that that does save like you know a hundred twenty dollars. You have a large Mormon family, then you might want to do it. Right. Oh, and that's also like a difference in personalities as well. I'm such a frugal person when it comes to money. I would never pay a hundred dollars to you know for like a pay per view thing like that or a, a fight or anything. Like it's just like I can do so many other things with that money that I'd rather do that and have just as good a time. I'd rather See, go out, like, I have no problem paying $100 to go somewhere and watch something, because, again, there's the whole, like, crowd experience and everything yeah. and being part of that, but at home, I don't I don't see the value in that at all. You've got to provide I mean, all of the, the entertainment uh, and community yourself. You've got to find people that are willing to go in on it with you, I think. I don't think yeah. anyone should just pay $100 at home. Right, well, and that's the idea there. And so that's the kind of the balance you got to figure out with this ticket thing here, because obviously at home people are going to watch it with more than just one person per ticket. You can't like, you know, yeah. price. But like, you, there's there's no way to verify how many audience members you're going to have per rental. Right. So that's that's why the ticket kind of has to balance out and figure out. So that's why twenty dollars is not a bad number, but it's it's just a little rich for my blood because I'm a cheapy person overall. I don't even pay for the three ninety nine rentals. I go find something for free and watch that instead because you know the the catalog of movies is infinitesimal. I think they found like the right price for me at three ninety nine. I'll pay pretty much that to watch a movie at home. Um, yeah, I don't really feel motivated. Uh, I mean, I know I'll get all the best stuff at the end of the year anyway, and that there's a lot of opportunities for press that I know, I know, uh, like our listener might not have that. Um, I feel bad for saying it, but uh, it's not the best value proposition for me to even watch a movie and pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it's going to have a huge impact because also with this has come the closure of uh, Can and um, probably Sif almost. Definitely SIF since all South those by Southwest are as well. Uh, South by Southwest, uh, Tribeca's closed. Um, so many. And these are where all the independent productions get money and uh, financing to go bigger. And that might not happen this year. We might not. A lot of movies just won't come out, I think. Uh, I know France has canceled tons of features that they were funding. Uh, it's going to be mm. really horrible for international cinema. And right after we just got Parasite in, I feel like countries are canceling all their movies. That's a real fucking shame. This is setting a really bad precedence for the next decade of film, I think. You really want that first year to start off well, and this is a uh, an unprecedented disaster in <laughs> yeah. our film world, for sure. 
I mean, it's not, I don't want to make like a false equivalence, but it's not uncomparable to um, like 9-11, right? Like that's pretty early on. And Yeah, I mean, I obviously different kind of disaster going yeah. on here, but... There will uh, be more, tons more deaths from this, but it's not the kind of national tragedy feeling that that had. Right, and I don't think it's, it's less likely to shape... Uh, like the American lifestyle that that nine eleven was because that was like an obvious huge turning point in our history and and that is something of a false equivalence but I get the the idea there the impact like there probably hasn't been as great an impact especially for movie dumb <laughs> since since that I would say I mean I guess the difference is stuff didn't shut down when that happened right it strengthened the economy in some weird ways where people wanted to go spend money in you know local places and became isolationist which. Uh, I think this will also cause, will also become just more America-focused and close the borders on outside films and uh, probably not get an international feature again, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, somewhat of a shame, but I, I'm not sure. Do you think it will... I wonder this, do you think that this might shape because of how much more dialed back and how much more catered to streaming uh, movies are inevitably going to become? Do you think that's going to inspire studios to fund smaller films or bigger films still? Because I would think that bigger films aren't going to be made as much because of the the cost it will have versus you know putting on streaming, it's not going to come out the same. So you can make smaller projects more available to people much more quickly, and I think that's mu- more likely the direction that uh, studios are going to go. If this doesn't work and we go back, I don't think it will have an impact. But if this becomes the regular to have these medium sized films that come out day of. I, I can imagine that uh, uh, studios are going to gain some leverage out of this, and they might fight that window, that uh, theater window. Um, they can only do this because theaters are closed, obviously. Once theaters are responsible for their earnings, they're going to push back again. So mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. Yeah, uh, I'm not totally optimistic that the no. theater <laughs> business is going to survive this. Uh, again, especially so if, not, if... No, like, I'm all not. Together? Yeah, I'm. I, I've said for a while that I think that streaming will eventually uh, usurp um, theaters as the the main way of taking in, and it's going to be like only blockbusters ever will get at theaters anymore. Uh, eventually, um, and I, <laughs> I hope not. I, I, I as do I, but I'm I'm being very nihilistic here. Um, but the idea as well that if this proves to be, you know. Uh, something profitable and you know working for the studios just to put things out straight to streaming that's going to reduce theater you know attendance even greater after all this like it's very possible that the theater business doesn't recover from something like an event like this whatsoever i don't think so at all i think I a ton not. of theaters are going to close and it's going to be catastrophic for independent film but uh, yeah. i don't think at all that it's going to have a bottom line impact in four months again I mean, that's my that's my total apocalyptic prediction prediction because i just don't see an end in sight for this coronavirus issue anytime yeah. soon i i very well think it could go on for a very very long time and like i said at least in my lifetime i can't recall anything having as serious an impact on my everyday life as this has like that's the, the that was the thing about the 9-11 comparison is that had very right. little impact although it was very scary to watch and this is very it, it affects everyone in the world it's also the last time I can remember where everyone in like over 90 countries are all thinking and dealing with the same thing at once. So um, in some ways, maybe it'll connect us. And I bet we're going to get a ton of really interesting films about this yeah. kind of subject. Maybe we'll revive uh, viral zombie films again like we did. <laughs> <laughs> I know Alex Garland said he has ideas for 28 months later or whatever he'd call the third one. So Now would be the time to do it. Yeah, I can't imagine they're not having those conversations uh, if they're talking about any films. But I think everything's just on standby, uh, even on uh, streaming. I guess my, I guess my thing about this is that Netflix has also shut down all their productions. Like, I don't think they're about to usurp theaters just because they can't make anything themselves. That's true. That's a that's a good point there. That production halting is also going to create an issue here, but people are going to turn to streaming more, and I think that's going to yeah. condition them to want that more. And oh, uh, I agree, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, it's going to cut in inevitably. Yeah. This is going to change things for good. Um, if we people, can't go back. people who already aren't on the streaming train, I think are going to jump on, and people who are are just going to you know fall into that even further. Like now is the time that everyone's going to turn to the streaming, uh, and you know there's lots of great stuff out there. I'm very 
thankful that there are services beyond Netflix who make mostly just stuff for themselves, you know, and only put out their own output that are that still have all this content uh, that we can take in. It's, it's a great time for someone like me who just wants to divulge and do old classics again and tell people, that, you know, that there's a treasure trove of great films out there that they can stream and watch and they don't even have to leave their house for. I guess the one thing for me is thinking about how last year we had a month for, you know, $10 a month where we got the Irishman, Dolomite's My Name, um, The Two Popes, we got, uh, what else, Marriage Story, uh, Mm -hmm. all for $10, right? And then it's $20 for The Hunt, and I'm like, what the fuck, right? Right, well, that's the thing, and that's the weird model, I wonder how the transition to greater streaming is going to equivalent, you know, make the equivalent there, like... There's no way of us knowing if the giant price tag on the Irishman paid off for Netflix in any way. Like it, it was, I think it was hugely popular for them. I, I yeah. we never know how to track that because that could be one minute out of three hours that most people watch. So. Well, well, it's not even about that. It's like, did the presence of the Irishman cause enough new people to sign up or current people to stay signed up to equivalent some kind of profit like it's it's yeah. impossible to calculate there's no way to to search that but that's the model that streaming works with and it works obviously and i just don't know how we calculate that for the future i know we're looking at scorsese now and he's saying he really wishes his flowers of the killer moon could be taken by netflix because yeah he had such a good experience developing it there and he's realizing the limitations of the modern studio that there, um, you know, there aren't really limitations. You you get the budget you get, and then you you go make something. And that's what we're seeing. Like I said, more and more. Like you know, we talked for a while about big filmmakers like Scorsese or Soderbergh or whoever just making films solely on Netflix now. And with something like this, where the studios are entirely incapacitated and theater attendance is going to drop through the floor, you know, why wouldn't even more people flock to Netflix to, to make stuff where they know their film is at least going to be seen? Because that was like the whole selling point for Scorsese is that even if it's not going to be seen as he really wanted, it was going to be seen still. Do you think it was worth it overall for Netflix to get to the Oscars and to even have that conversation last year? Yeah, I think... Uh... The more Netflix does more of this stuff and push the, the the limitations of what they're doing and the audience that they're garnering, the more they're going to be part of the public conversation and be seen as the you know the entity and the kind of the center of the streaming world that they really are. And you know I love the fact that they're doing so many great projects still and you know such a great variety. And I will always always be grateful that they funded the finishing of the last Orson Welles film. Yeah, and I think having like these 26 movies last year that were up for submission, it sort of primes us to go into Mank as well this year. I think that's going to be such a huge hitter at the Oscars, because nothing else is going to come out and Netflix could release it as normal. I think it's an easy pass for them to get an Oscar. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Again, I've, I have no idea how the Oscars are going to shake out in any way. It entirely depends on the recovery of the the theaters you know and the public attendance and such right now and again it really messes it up right (laughs) because that's the whole shape of the season unless the the straight to vod system works entirely and like everyone just shifts over to that and i can foresee Mm. that as a possibility if things don't calm down by june at least i think if if it's still going in june we're really in trouble it would be really horrible for our site since we need to be able to go out to screeners and whatnot so i hope not totally but We'll just have to shift to retrospectives entirely, and you know I'll have to God. I'll have to work way more than I'm used to right now, putting out a piece every other month. Yeah, um, I we're also slowing down a little bit on the site, so not by much. I think a two three pieces a week should be pretty, and the podcast should be pretty standard for us. Just for, I'm glad we were able to keep the podcast going. We weren't sure with you know all the stuff you're gonna have to take care of at home with everyone being there. It's hard to schedule that properly to make sure everyone else is out of the house so we can yak 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 for 45 50 minutes if it gets worse we may have to take a week or two off but uh for now daycares are open and things are okay yeah and uh we are delighted to bring old films you can stream to you so i guess this is our first of those our first recommendation to check out right yeah um so we just talked a little bit about orson welles films uh one that was new and then one that's about him is actually that was the last Orson Welles film we uh, 
talked about on the podcast, unless you want to was count, it? <laughs> unless you want to count the third man, which he didn't direct, okay. obviously. But largely, I, I have, and we in general have avoided doing another Orson Welles film because I am a gigantic, you know, fervent Orson Welles fan, and I didn't want to overdo the podcast like that. Like in the same way, we've only done one David Lynch film so far. <laughs> We're trying well, to... I think in some way that it would make sense to slow it down so we don't go like a, a other side of the wind, Citizen Kane, right? Like, a, yeah, I think this one makes sense for our, our second choice. We we didn't go we, we didn't want to go all ham, but it has been actually more than a year then since we've done an Orson Welles film because that was like the third podcast I think. <laughs> yeah, it was the other side of the wind, which is crazy that we're like, all right, I think. 64 podcasts later, it's alright to talk about another Orson Welles film, especially one like this. Like, this is a uh, lesser Welles film, which is not saying much, because it's still really great, and uh, worth talking about for myriad, myriad of reasons, and I have all of the knowledge, and as you can hear, this book to reference for all of the crazy stuff that went on making The Lady from Shanghai. I just want to say that before the film, I knew nothing about it, and after the film, I also know nothing about it. Yeah, that was going to be my main question, is that, uh, did any of that make sense to you? No, absolutely not. I mean, some <laughs> of it made sense. Like, the first half uh, has, like, a pretty linear, easy-to-follow route that feels probably pulled from whatever book it's from. Semi-linear, like, as linear as you expect uh, film noir to be. And, and that's, I think, the thing here is that... a. That's why this this craziness of the lady from Shanghai lends itself so well to this genre here is that it's uh, the nonsensical and like hazy nature of it is perfect for something as kind of mystique and uh, confounding as uh, film noir can be. It does have that very dreamlike, jumpy nature, and you know there are lots of film noirs, especially something like uh, Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep, where everyone praises the fact that it doesn't make sense, which I don't agree with that necessarily, but I do yeah. think that that's the case here, like the fact that you can't really piece together what the lady of Shang from Shanghai is doing or what it means by the end or why you, you know, anything's going on to begin with. That's all like a great part of the intrigue to the film. And I think that works here where it doesn't necessarily in others. I just feel like at some point it becomes such an intoxicated fever dream. I feel like they're all sweating alcohol, like stumbling off Errol Flynn's yacht into like a shot or something. Yeah. Oh, and there's lots of like these bizarre, like, uh, interesting close-ups in particular, which is not something Wells uses a lot in his films, and you can see the sweat like very, you know, much pouring uh, all over these uh, characters throughout the film because they're working in this hot, uh, you know, Mexican uh, <clears throat> locale, and it, and it is very bizarre throughout. You get lots of weird angles and such, and just uh, again, I think the big driving thing though with the film is that how bizarre the characters are for the most time and there's so much double crossing and back and forth and you know hidden motivations and things and then you know things take so many weird left turns and then the story changes genres at one point then it changes again it's it's really messy and confusing but on purpose and also by accident and i don't think that anything i said there helps explain it at all well, it's so feverish, I don't know if you can really clean it up into a pile of really logical pieces. You you can break down the film into its kind of basic plot beats, like Orson Welles meets Rita Hayworth, and she brings him onto this yacht, uh, where she's, you know, where he meets her, you know, crooked lawyer husband, and then there's a plot with his partner to fake his death, and then there's mm. also another, you know, double cross going on where it's actually they're trying to kill the lawyer husband and yeah. then the other guy gets killed instead and it's, it's again it's a serious double crosses and you could break it down but it feels like an exercise in tedium to do that and entirely misses the point of the film i mean i feel like some of the mess is is so intentional that uh to really break it down i mean to really find the the purpose is kind of missing the point anyway yeah, it's definitely more of a you're along for the ride here and, you know, get swept up in the craziness and, like I said, dreamlike haziness of it all and, uh, you know, just hope you could take away as much as possible before the end. But you're not supposed to, I think, necessarily walk away with a clear conclusion of events. And again, right. not not just because the film was famously meddled with by the studio, as most Orson Welles films were, but because it's inherently confusing and right now, Rita Hayworth's having a special on Criterion, and I know this is one of her um, 
underperforming films that she had the haircut and the the different colored hair and uh you want to talk about how it's different yeah yeah i'll talk about a lot and i'll talk about the history of it because of course i know a lot and i've got my book here um so rita hayworth is actually more known for a bit more glamorous roles and she had this beautiful big flowing red hair that was kind of her signature thing Mm. uh people who maybe aren't as familiar with her will know her as the big poster girl in uh the shawshank redemption which was originally uh, the novella by Stephen King called Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption. And you get that uh, beautiful image for, of her with her big flowing hair from a film noir she made just a year before Ladies from Shanghai called Gilda. It was like her most iconic role. And she did lots of films around that time as well. But uh, interestingly enough, there's a whole history and backstory between Wells and Rita you probably don't realize going into the film is that uh, did you know they actually were married up and through mm-hmm. the production here? Yeah, uh, yeah. She she and Orson Welles were married for a while, and their relationship fell apart just a little bit before the making of the film. They were divorced uh, just after, but um, the idea with the uh, hair, as you brought up there, her her luscious red hair that was chopped off and dyed platinum blonde for the film here, was uh, obviously an intentional choice for the part and for specifically the transformation of. Uh, Rita's character, because this was a different kind of role that she was taking on that she was doesn't, and that was the idea behind it. There, it uh, doesn't and, even like play as Rita, like even on the really cool posters, like the you know all of her posters should have her uh, hair and her locks kind of like curling as she's like in a pose where it could fly backward, right? And here yeah. it's like a blonde wig on someone. It looks weird. It's entirely different, and it's a very different role for her as well. She's still a seductress uh, and a femme fatale like she was a year before in Gilda, but in a, in a very different way. And, of course, uh, at the time, she was. Uh, this was originally going to be like a B-picture for Columbia and mm-hmm. just some something you know more or less throwaway. But uh, Harry Cohn, the uh, studio head of Columbia Pictures at the time, really wanted to capitalize on... Rita as you know his big star that basically kept the studio alive for most of the time and the relationship with Orson Welles and so put them together against Welles's wishes and gave it a budget for an A picture uh, but he was none yeah. too happy to see his beautiful star's long red signature hair being chopped off <laughs> <laughs> and then we look at certain scenes like you're saying well I think her highlight in the movie is her singing and then you say that's a you know not even an intention of Wells that that's yep. probably the studio forcing their hand on uh, what we want from Rita exactly that's entirely uh, an inclusion from Harry Cohn he insisted that Rita have a song in the film uh, as she did in a lot of her movies that was a signature of hers so they stuck that in there and then they used that theme throughout the movie as recurrent in the soundtrack which was also something Wells did not like or want uh, but, it's, again, it's interesting stuff like that that I think that mixes up the film and makes it interesting. Like, its flaws are the fascinating aspect of it overall, as well as the, the moments of genius, you know, throughout that you see. Of course, the famous uh, ending of the film with the Hall of Mirrors and such that's so iconic. We should talk about how cool that is. We have the we have the one really scrambled shot where there's a lot of movement in the Hall of Mirrors. It's so hard to shoot, obviously, and it, you say there's a lot more that went into that. More specifically, the scene preceding it, uh, the the carnival stuff. Uh, there's yeah. there's a quote from Wells talking about it in this uh, book here with his conversations with Peter Bogdanovich, is saying there was a whole big scene, I think like uh, five ten minutes or so of stuff, and really there's just only a couple shots left in the film. Harry Cohn like said like you know what the hell is all this crap you know and he cut it out of the film, uh, which is a shame because it's really great and again adds to the beautiful confusing nature of everything there and then the hall of he said uh wells himself said that 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 would be way more memorable today and it's supposed to the hall of mirrors climax but as it is the hall of mirrors stuff is really brilliant and you could see its influence in so many things just as recently as you know what they had a big mirror showdown in the john wick 2 right gunfight in there yeah that's Maybe obviously a birds major homage. <laughs> is there one in Birds of Prey? I don't know. And, no, and there's, a cop- a big, there's a big carnival finale that gets climactic, and there's some mirrors. Nothing yeah. direct. I think it, I think it's obviously an influence, uh, so much so that it's part of like the, the cultural references that people pull from without necessarily knowing it comes from this Wells film. And it's just a popular... like Even the mirror fight thing, like that was popularized again in a Bruce Lee film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's such a good reflection excuse the pun, of, of the plot and how uh, 
wickedly twisted it all gets to just to have a you know it feels like looking at fun house mirror and if you had that extended 10 more minutes i feel like i could really buy into the ethos that he's trying to paint there of a kind of twisted story that's hard to understand i just don't think it always goes in far enough on that kind of thing but uh i yeah. i love a big risk well, the reflection aspect of it is, I think, the kind of integral, you know, final stamp on the film that gives any potential themes you can kind of take from the film some actual meaning and depth. The idea that everyone there is two-faced and has, you know, multiple facades they're presenting and that they lead to their ultimate downfall uh, in the, yeah. you know, the shootout there is effectively the, uh, the, you know, the statement of the film there throughout and how there's a constant, you know, threat of betrayal from everyone going on. And again, the the way in which everyone doesn't uh, pre- presents a different front to each character, and how that shifts throughout the film, and that's, I think, what the mirror scene reflects. And I do mean the pun. I feel like what we were talking about is very important during the showing. That it's just a uh, it, a lot of limitations really bring a great amount of creativity, and there are few limitations anymore. So movies don't have to be as clever as this. Yeah, and I think what's interesting still is to consider that this is not really a project that Wells wanted to work on and in fact he didn't really get paid to do because of a whole situation getting in a mess here but he still goes for it and tries to do the material he has so much justice and you know raises it to another level with all the surreal and inventive imagery he has going on here uh, but the, basically the, the backstory for how the film got made in the first place was that at the time Wells was on Broadway working on a lavish musical production of Around the World in 80 Days. And, like, just before the, the opening night, uh, they weren't able to pay the $50,000 for the, the costumes that they were renting and such. And so they were held in Hawk. And so he called Harry Cohn in Columbia and asked him, you know, and, and pitched him this idea, basically. He looked at this, uh, famously, this, the story is that he looked at this bookshelf next to him on the phone and picked up the book there uh, that Lady <laughs> from Shanghai is based on called uh, If I Die Before I Wake and, you know, basically pitched it to him on the spot and said he could have it free, you know, or, uh, as long as he paid $50,000 to him right away, overnight the, you know, the cost on the wire, and he will write and direct it for free and, and okay. act in it obviously so um that also led to a lot of problems right because he found out he couldn't fire him if he's acting yeah. directing and writing the movie yeah there's this great quote in here from wells i was going to quote uh about what cohen's saying he says you know i'm never going to make a picture like this again not because of the script you understand it's the script i approved and liked but i don't care i don't care uh what anybody says it's just because nobody should be the director and producer and also the leading <laughs> actor in any picture there's no way he can be fired <laughs> And there seems to be a lot of, uh, uh, sometimes it seems like it's fun, but there is, at least in hindsight for us, there's a lot of animosity between Wells and the people he ends up working with that turns into a lot of fun stories because he has a lot of tricks and he seems to employ them all against his own productions. Mm-hmm. It's it's always a fascinating, I think, to consider the context in which it's made as well. But again, the film itself is just also fascinating in its own right. You don't need to know about the production details or the tumultuous relationship between Rita and Wells behind the scenes to find all the interesting aspects about the film. It's just, it, it's fascinating. I don't know, it's it's uh, great, I think, that there's confusing mess of a film can be so compelling without actually having something you can really take away at the end like like you've got to try really hard to find the meaning in the film which is not something you really want but somehow it's just it's that magnetic wellsian charm i think that works so well here that, that you can see better in something than say like uh the stranger which he made uh, about a year before which also was you know more or less a straightforward noir film plagued by studio meddling and such well, I think sometimes I'm really okay with being confused. I want art to be as confusing as life. And I go into a museum and I'm uh, more drawn to an abstract painting of a person than one that is perfect and makes sense, right? My mm-hmm. mind keeps a, my mind sticks with something. And whether or not there's intended value, <clears throat> I'm able to find something in it. Um, and it's never clear what that is, but <laughs> sometimes it's just fun to look at something and to experience it. And I think that's fine. Oh, and you want art to affect you, I feel like. And yeah. even if 
even if you walk away and the lady from Shanghai doesn't make any sense overall, you'll never forget. Didn't. Yeah, you'll never forget stuff like the mirror shootout, which is really you know provocative and you know makes an impact visually on you. The the craziness of the plot going all over the place. The I think even like stuff like the weird boring courtroom stuff. You're gonna remember that. It's gonna stand out. Or, well, I mean, or, it's weird enough that it just makes you sit through it when it's been such a frantically paced film. It's been, it is. It's in such a hurry to get there, and then that it makes you sit. And it's it's very interesting. You notice that pace throughout. Like people are like stepping on each other's lines constantly, and the editing is so quick, quick, quick. It's just trying to get through everything. Like the first five minutes, you're past like the introductions and stuff. You're already on the <laughs> boat, and it's like, well, okay, which is really moving. And then it just stops and slows down. It's like, all right, now we're switching to a courtroom drama, and we're gonna do this for a while, and then we're leaving. And now we're in Chinatown all of a sudden, and it's it's really all over the map sometimes, and it doesn't make any sense. But that's what makes it fascinating and the the confusing nature of it does give it like i said that more dreamlike quality it's like you're sitting there trying to piece together these you know ideas memories like a dream and i think that's the ultimate goal of film noir in general is to create that hazy you know unreal atmosphere with while still being grounded in some kind of uh relatable reality despite being incoherent i think it does meet its goals so um, i I feel like I was ready to buy into a really nautical movie, and the further it goes, the further it slips away from that. So I yeah. feel like that's my main criticism, is like the incoherence of theme. Whether or not the story makes sense, which it doesn't, I think the theme is too incoherent. Uh, again, it's I don't think it's about making sense, ultimately. You know, it, it's a banal endeavor to try and piece together what is going on here. I think ultimately you just want to reflect on how it makes you feel and the confusing ride of it. And I think you see that reflected in Michael's character, you know, by played by Wells. He's very lost in this world of what the hell is going on with all these crazy people who all kill themselves by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, fella, I gotta go. It's, uh, yeah. they, their exits are so... So overpronounced and abrupt, and it's such a strange movie, but I, I really appreciate it. I'm glad, and I think it's one of those as well, that, of course, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense the first time. And it won't make a whole lot of sense on the second, third, or 20th time, but you'll like it even more, I think. It'll latch onto those you know parts that you remember most, like the the giant fish in the fish tanks and stuff, or the eel like creeping up behind them when they're hanging out in the aquarium. It's just, just these weird choices that are made in the filming of it that will stand out and you know stick to your memory. I think. I guess that's my favorite part is when they go into the aquarium and there's like goldfish that are fifty size uh, wells, <laughs> fifty times the size. Yeah, they're they're huge, and it's like, why is this the case? I can't tell you exactly, but it's... Just the feeling, right? Like, it, it's, it's just the feeling of having, like, that ominous, huge presence behind them in a very emotionally charged scene. It puts you on edge, and, you know, it's definitely unnerving, and I think you can mine something out of it, that predatory feeling you get, especially with the conversation going on between wells and rita there but you know for me to sit here and try and dissect <laughs> the the choices and what they mean and how they reflect on the characters i feel like it just misses the point of the feeling which is just yeah. uh, uh, the film is just supposed to be like a a whirlwind of confusion and mystery and you know sudden left turns and weird well, pocket think, of imagery i think it's my favorite because it cues us into how glass works in this movie too uh, the over enlargement of these sea creatures is like our first experience of like a big you know, glass that's uh, amplifying a background. And then we get, like, the, you know, the funhouse mirrors later. Like, he has an interesting relationship with how he's going to shoot mirrors, and it's, like, cueing us into uh, more of a visual theme that we're going to encounter later. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just want to ask any uh, kind of final thoughts from you walking away, because I know this was your first time with it, and it, I think it's always interesting because you never know how someone's going to react to a, <laughs> a, a real mess of a film like this, a great mess at that. I think the thing is that I don't mind since I'm, well, I'm so used to Lynch, right, that I'm very primed right. for messiness and I actually appreciate it and I don't need words to mean anything or I don't even need a plot to make sense. Um, we were going to do The Professional, which I thought made too much sense, you know. It was, it was very streamlined and straightforward and uh, not as interesting. I know from the first scene, like, we switched over uh, 
just because that was leaving the channel. We wanted to talk about something as well that people could go out and watch and it's not going to go away anytime soon. You got at least like a month to watch <laughs> Lee from Shanghai on the Criterion channel. You guys and, are stuck inside for the next month, so we're going to cover films that you can no longer see. <laughs> yeah, that was a little short-sighted on that one, but, uh, but uh, hopefully... Now we have more information. Yeah, from here on, I think the following films we do, as long as the virus is around, hopefully we can make it so that they're available to people to stream. I think that'll be nice. Yeah, there's no reason to go out of our way and do obscure films when I think people are really looking for something interesting, and uh, this is a good one to see. Yeah, I think so. Even if you don't love it, I think you can't help but be fascinated by it. And I think that's uh, all you really need from the film. And that's what I love about it, anyway. Uh, it's not my favorite Wells by any stretch, but it no. is. <laughs> I think it's still a great one. It managed to be great in spite of or because of its erratic structure and totally confusing narrative. Yeah, I don't think it's anywhere near close to best, but it... It is one of the most interesting things I've seen lately, so that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and certainly we had more to talk about. And I bet we'd have even more to talk about, but uh, as we said, let's keep these a little short, eh? Yeah, yeah, this is a good length, and I gotta um, rescind the computer to my wife now. <laughs> Alright, well thanks, I will talk to you about our next Wells film in another uh, 63 or 4 podcasts. Alright, thanks so much, Faye.